Good morning, everybody, and welcome to Overeaters Anonymous Vision for You Big Book Study. My name is Janice, and I'm a recovered compulsive overeater. Today is Thursday, April 25th, 2013. Today we are reading from the big book. We are in Bill's story on page four, and we're going to begin with the paragraph, Next Morning I Telephoned a Friend in Montreal. The reference number for yesterday, which was Wednesday, April 24th, is 4346. That's 4346. OA Preamble. Overeaters Anonymous is a fellowship of individuals who through shared experience, strength, and hope are recovering from compulsive overeating. We welcome everyone who wants to stop eating compulsively. There are no dues or fees for members. We are self-supporting through our own contributions, neither soliciting nor accepting outside donations. OA is not affiliated with any public or private organization, political movement, ideology, or religious doctrine. We take no position on outside issues. This meeting's primary purpose is to abstain, to recover from compulsive overeating, and to carry this message of recovery to those who still suffer. Sole purpose. OA's fifth tradition states each group has but one primary purpose, to carry its message to the compulsive overeater who still suffers. At Vision for You Big Book Study, our message is that people who suffer from compulsive overeating can recover through abstinence and the practice of the 12 steps and 12 traditions of Overeaters Anonymous. I'd now like to ask Melanie to please read the 12 steps. Good morning, everyone. My name is Melanie. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater in Oregon. The 12 steps. One, we admitted we were powerless over food, that our lives had become unmanageable. Two, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Three, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. Four, made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Five, admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. Six, we're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. Seven, humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings. Eight, made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. Nine, made direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. Ten, continued to take personal inventory and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. Eleven, sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood him, praying only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. Twelve, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to compulsive overeaters and to practice these principles in all our affairs. Pass. Thank you, Melanie. I'd now like to ask Margaret H. to please read the Twelve Conditions. Thank you, Janice. Good morning, Vision for You. This is Margaret, compulsive overeater in Illinois. The 12 traditions. One, our common welfare should come first. Personal recovery depends upon OA unity. Two, for our group purpose, there is but one ultimate authority, a loving God, as he may express himself in our group conscience. Our leaders are but trusted servants. They do not govern. Three, The only requirement for OA membership is a desire to stop eating compulsively. Four, each group should be autonomous except in matters affecting other groups or OA as a whole. Five, each group has but one primary purpose, to carry its message to the compulsive overeater who still suffers. Six, an OA group ought never endorse, finance, or lend the OA name to any related facility or outside enterprise, lest problems of money, property, and prestige divert us from our primary purpose. Seven, every OA group ought to be fully self-supporting, declining outside contributions. Eight, Overeaters Anonymous should remain forever non-professional, but our service centers may employ special workers. Nine, OA 
employee as such ought never be organized, but we may create service boards or committees directly responsible to those they serve. 10. Overeaters Anonymous has no opinion on outside issues. Hence, the OA name ought never be drawn into public controversy. 11. Our public relations policy is based on attraction rather than promotion. We need always maintain personal anonymity at the level of press, radio, films, television, and other public media of communication. Twelve, anonymity is a spiritual foundation of all these traditions, ever reminding us to place principles before personalities. Thank you. I pass. Thank you, Margaret. How our meeting works. Our meeting focuses on the directions for recovery described in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. We read a paragraph or two from the literature, then stop and share on what was read. Anyone can share, but we ask that you keep your sharing to topic and literature we are discussing and that you keep your share to approximately three minutes. Singleness of purpose reminds us to identify as compulsive overeaters only. Our abstinence requirement for moderators is one year and for readers is six months. There is no abstinent requirement for sharing on topic. This meeting does request that your sharing be directly linked to what was read. We are sharing what the directions in the big book mean to us. To share, press star 1 to unmute. Once you are done sharing, let us know by saying pass. Then press star 1 to mute your phone. In order to have a quiet meeting, Everyone's phone, except the speakers, should be muted. And today we resume resume our study of the big book, and we are in Bill's story, and we are on page four, and we'll begin with a a sentence in the paragraph, next morning, I telephoned a friend. And I would like to ask Kathy Kay to please start. Thank you, Janice. Good morning, Vision for You. My name is Kathy and I'm a recovering compulsive overeater. Next morning, I telephoned a friend in Montreal. He had plenty of money left and thought I had better go to Canada. By the following spring, we were living in our custom style. I felt like Napoleon's returning from Elba. No St. Helena's for me. But drinking caught up with me again, and my generous friend had to let me go. This time, we stayed broke. So this is right after the crash of 29, uh, and I remember in earlier paragraphs, Bill was quite um, disparaging of others who seemed destroyed uh, not only financially but emotionally, and he had a lot of pride in the fact that he was going to beat this thing. Um, and he was driven to go to to Canada and uh, get back on track. And that's what, um, when it says we were living in our custom style, um, that was what that meant that he went to Canada and he was got a job with his friend and he thought all was well. It was very clear that when he had money and a job, he felt on top of the world and then within a short amount of time would be taking the drink again. Um, I felt like Napoleon's returning from Elba, no St. Helena's for me. So St. Helena was uh, the place where Napoleon ended up being imprisoned and actually dying after war. Um, so Bill, at this point, had an extreme amount of pride and self-confidence. But again, the same cycle repeated itself with the drinking. Um, and I have to say, I've never experienced anything quite this dramatic, but there were many, many times in my life where Things would happen. I would feel like a failure. I would um, uh, eat to keep myself going and to raise my spirits and feel that much more resolved to get back on my feet. And this cycle repeated itself over and over again. What I never realized until I came into recovery was... um, 
to some extent, I was creating the cycle of ups and downs uh, with my eating. It was not just a matter of things having happened outside of me. It was my response to things that were fueled in a negative way by my drug. And that's what we see here over and over again in Bill's story. With that, I pass. Thank you, Kathy. Would anyone else like to comment on this paragraph? Well, this is Janice, and I I have a couple things that I'd I'd like to share on this paragraph. You know, he, he once again, once again, drinking has caught up with me. And, you know, I don't know about you and your compulsive overeating, but I know that as mine progressed, there was nothing worse than here I am again. Here I am again. And I couldn't stay in that place very long. You know, there'd be something inside of me like Bill, but my drinking caught up with me again. You know, so this was starting to happen to Bill over and over. And perhaps he couldn't see it quite as clearly yet, but he knew. He knew. You know, don't you think he knew at some point in time that that time was beginning to run out? You know, he had found a way out once again with a generous friend who was able to give him a job. And he was living in that delusion and that denial that he could control and enjoy his drinking. You know, that he could control and enjoy his drinking. One more time. One more time. But it caught up with him again. Again. And this time, we stayed broke. This time, we stayed broke. So, you know, there was no coming back as quickly this time. You know, and I, I've been in that place where one more time I thought I could screw up enough of my willpower and make it out one more time. But we're seeing in Bill the progression of the disease. You know, the, the, the thinking, the progression of the thinking as well as the progression of the physical allergy. You know, it, it's hard to hang on to that delusion and that denial when it keeps slapping you in the face. You know, we're seeing that in Bill's story. I think it's, it's, to me, it was really significant to see here he was again. And with that, I'll pass. Would anyone else like to comment on this paragraph? Okay, we'll move on to the next paragraph. And Penny C., would you please read that? I'm sorry, but that's okay. Katie, but go ahead. Go, Go ahead. All right, we'll have Penny C. read the next paragraph, if you would, please. Are you there, Penny? I'm sorry. Good morning. It's Penny C. And um, the next paragraph, I just want to be sure I'm on the right place here. I lost my page. Um, page four, we went to live with my wife's parents at the bottom of that page. Okay, sorry. We went to live with my wife's parents. I found a job, then lost it as the result of a brawl with the taxi driver. Mercifully, no one could guess that I was to have no real employment for five years or hardly draw a sober breath. My wife began to work in a department store, coming home exhausted to find me drunk. I became an unwelcome hanger-on at brokerage places. You know, this, uh, this, this whole story at the beginning until he finds a higher power uh, reminds me of what, you know, what our lives become when we depend on anything but God. And, and he's depending on money, friends, and ultimately the sense of ease and comfort that comes with his uh, drinking. And and he's he's reaching. It seems to me he's on his way to reaching his bottom. You know this this man who had uh, attained such uh, successful um, prestige among his uh, 
fellows in the in the financial area and um you know had 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 a family that was willing especially his wife's family that was willing to aid him financially and emotionally comes to the point where where now his wife is having to go out to work and he has no job whatsoever and that's that's not only what alcohol does to to people and to their families but that's what any any um anything that we put in place of our higher power and food did it to me where i got to the point where my bottom was coming very soon uh, if i hadn't already reached it by the time i got to OA. so i'm anxious to hear the rest of the story when uh, i you know i read the book and it turns out all right as the song goes so thank you i'll let i'll pass thank you penny would anyone like to comment on this paragraph? This is Kim. Go ahead, Kim. Good morning, Janice. Good morning, my fellows. My name is Kim G, and I'm a recovered compulsive overeater from South Jersey. And just remember, this is back in the 1930s. This is a different time. You know, this is when men had and women had very traditional roles. You know, men were the breadwinners, and the women stayed at home. Men identities were what they did for a living. Men's identities were that they, they, had, to, they had to be the, the, the supplier for their family. And here he is, because of his drinking, he cannot get any real employment. So he has to live with his wife's parents. His wife's parents. How humiliating that is. Not even his own parents. Not even his own family. They're probably sick of him at this point. So he has to move in with his wife's parents. And his wife has to work in a department store, coming home exhausted, only to find him drunk. That's where he, he no longer is able to function and support himself or support his family. So think about how can we plug our story into that? Was there a point when we could no longer do activities? Our kids would want to go to the, the, the park, but maybe we're too heavy to be going in and we cannot get into all the, the all the the, you know, the swings and the slides, and we can't fit anymore. You know, our kids want us to go watch them play baseball, but we don't really want to go on those bleachers because we don't want to embarrass ourselves because we might break something. You know, maybe we don't go to the movies anymore because we don't sit in the seats comfortably. Or maybe we just don't have time. Maybe we're throwing our kids in bed early so that we can continue to binge. Causing, at, causing arguments with our family members so they'll leave the house and we can't be alone with our food. We can't really function at work. We're falling asleep at work because we're so exhausted from the food or we're starving ourselves and we can't even think straight because we don't have any nutrition in us. This is the point that Bill is getting at. It's no longer about being on the golf courses and hobnobbing with the, the big people. It's now the basic functions of life, the basic things that he is supposed to do to provide for himself and his family, he's no longer able to do. And as his wife is having to take over those things, so is your spouse having to take the kids to the baseball games? Is your spouse having to drive the kids to the movies? Is your spouse having to do everything because you're debilitated from this disease? Or you just don't care anymore because the only thing that matters is you and the food. So his wife is having to take over everything, working in the department store, coming home only to find him drunk. And we like to think that with the food, it only affects us. It doesn't affect others. Look how this is now affecting Bill's family. And with that, I pass. Thank you, Kim. Would anyone else like to comment on this paragraph? Press star one to unmute. This is Sharon. Rose. Go ahead, Sharon, and then Rose. Good morning, Janice, and good morning, Vision for You. This is Sharon, and I am a recovered compulsive overeater. My wife began to work in a department store, coming home exhausted to find me drunk. Boy, I think of, uh, when I read this, I think of the sacrifice. I think of this whole paragraph. Just, I think of his wife, Lois. What, what she went through, what she sacrificed, what she, 
put up with for him. And I think about my spouse and my family members and what they have put up with for me. And then I realized that when I started my recovery, I had to deal with resentments toward them for things they had done. And I lost that reality of of that feeling of gratitude for what they had put up with, how they had kept a roof over my head. Um, and and uh, kept me, held me up when I was at my very worst in my disease. And so I just want to mention that because sometimes when we get into recovery and start working through our fourth step, sometimes we just see what was done to us and we overlook what was done for us. And so I just mentioned that so that I can say that I am grateful to all of the family members that have put up with me. And with that, I pass. Thank you, Sharon. Go ahead, Rose. Thank you, Janice. Um, can you hear me? I can hear you great. Okay, thanks. Um, well, gosh, what... Um, it's not a gosh, it's oh my God, um, what Kim and also what Sharon just said. Um, I'm kind of catapulted back in my own life from um, both of these paragraphs because my um, my disease, I'm Rose and I'm a recovered compulsive overeater from New York. Um, five years before I got to OA, um, I actually moved to Montreal uh, running away from a a dysfunctional relationship in Boston. And and I went, I mean, it wasn't in the style of Bill Wilson by any stretch of the imagination, but it was in my addiction, full flight from reality. Um, I didn't have delusions of grandeur, though, at that time. I was uh, in full flight from reality, and that's why I ran away and ended up uh, stone broke, and um, this thing Sharon just said, um, an ear infection, sitting on my bed crying, not a drop of food in the house, no job, no money, um, uh, a knock on my door, and my brother and his wife show up out of the blue, just out of the blue, and um, take care of me, take me to the emergency room, get me medicine, fill up my cupboards with food, um, he says goodbye. He says take care of yourself. Puts fifty bucks in my hand, out of the blue. Or um, as like Sharon was saying, you know, when I started my fourth step, it was resentments against these people, without pausing, like it's um, being pointed out here in these paragraphs. And then in the next one, um, I mean, all I do is uh, move back to Boston briefly and then take off for New York City. And then for the next four years, um, totally separated from family, left no forwarding addresses. Uh, They had no telephone numbers for me. And did I care? I was, you know, on a roll in New York City, living the life, um, chasing after another guy I wanted, uh, in full flight from reality, um, eating um, was a way of life. That's all. Um, I managed to work to support myself um, pretty much. But um, no thought, no thought. I I just, in March, finished my fifth step and have come, oh, my God, so it's like what Sharon's talking about, seeing my behavior. Um, But that fifth step was with the loving presence of God with me. Um, how shall I say, Um, allowing me to see the behavior, see the um, disease, see all the defects I was living in, see the place food had in my life, and that I was then doing the best I could, but it 
it hurt and harmed, especially these family members. And to just bring it right up here, when I started my amends, the day I started my amends, my sister called that day because of something. She had never, ever spoken to me this way in talking. And I was given, handed in my lap, an opportunity to just let her say the hurts inside of her that she received from me, and they were all valid. And God was able to zip my lip so I didn't come back with anything except what this program gave me, which was acceptance of all that she said and knowledge that God's power was transforming me and doing for me and letting me sit still and see these truths about me to um, accept, well, just to accept all that he's given me from the program, this opportunity to amend my past behavior that had many similarities to what was being talked about in these paragraphs. And thank you, Janice, for letting me share. I'll pass. Thank you, Rose. Would anyone else like to comment on this paragraph before we move on? Good morning, Leah. I heard Leah and another person was there? Uh, Well, this was Leanne. Okay, we'll do Leah and then Leanne. Thank you so much, Janice. Good morning, everybody. My name is Leah. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater. Things are not looking good for Bill. (laughs) Uh, We went to live with my wife's parents. You know, mercifully, no one could guess that I was to have have no real employment for five years or hardly draw a sober breath. I mean, obviously, we're seeing tremendous progression here in, in the disease and you know, this illness, this disease, alcoholism, compulsive overeating, it destroys and deteriorates what other, whatever it touches. Um, Bill's soul is getting sucked right out of him. I mean, the madness, you can just feel uh, the madness kick up notches. Uh, you know, I feel that way. We went to live with my wife's parents. I mean, this is impacting every facet of his life. It has an economic impact. He can't show up at work. He's not accountable. He can't be responsible. He's unable to accomplish. I mean, we know him as a brilliant, intelligent, highly motivated, charismatic individual. I mean, for goodness sakes, uh, you know, he did become a leader of a vast enterprise. You know, that's the delicious irony of it, is that he became the leader of Alcoholics Anonymous. But look what happens when he's under the influence of another. Look what happens when he's under the influence of the disease. You know, there, he, all those talents, all those God-given strengths that he has, all that potential is all channeled into self-destruction. So this economic in- impact, he, he has no money. He's got to sleep on the couch of his wife's parents. Um, he can't show up at work. You know, his home life, his, my wife began to work in a department store coming home exhausted. His home life is deteriorating. He's, engaged, he's in disharmony, disharmony with his wife, disharmony with his in-laws. He's in an embarrassing situation. He can't hold commitments. He can't live up to the potential that God gave him to live up to because he's too busy bowing to the demands of the disease. He's hardly drawing a sober breath. That is a decision he is making. He is creating his own pain. No one is doing that to him. That's the whole thing. No one does this to us. We succumb. We invite it in. We need a new mind. (laughs) We need a new mind. I mean, his life has no meaning and no purpose here. There is emptiness. And that's why, you know, this program of recovery transforms us from this type of self-centered existence to a God-centered existence where we each have the opportunity 
to have a new mind, a spirit-guided mind. And we can get that through the process of the 12 steps. Because whatever we direct our lives towards, that's what's going to run our lives. I mean, Bill is directing his life towards submitting himself to alcoholism. He is surrendering all right. He's surrendering to alcoholism. And that's what's running his life. Because his life is based on the ideas that he produces in his mind. And the results are obvious. Meaning every part of his life is deteriorating. But conversely, when we direct our lives towards a power greater than ourselves that can restore us to sanity, then the results are obvious there too. And with that, I pass. Thank you. Thank you, Leah. Go ahead, Leanne. Hi, my name is Leanne. I'm a compulsive overeater, and I um, thank you for being on the uh, moderating the, the call today. I just want to say real quickly, I love this meeting. I'm usually on a train traveling into work and can't share, but today I can, so I'm, I'm grateful for that. And this re- uh, reading really jumped out at me today, um, in particular because I'm coming back from a relapse not too long ago, and what was obvious to me was, as I was in into the food at that time, was that my behavior, I would come, I, w- I work, I would come home from work, but I would quote-unquote be exhausted. And so this was my excuse to just sort of sit for the remainder of the evening, for the remainder of the day, and just eat. And I, I was so unproductive. And my husband, you know, he would come home and he would assume the responsibilities of the house because I was too exhausted. Not to say that he wasn't exhausted as well, but... You know, the laundry, the cooking, the, the, the dishes, the, the, you know, the animals, you know, so on and so forth. And I just, I couldn't seem to get out of my way and um, to be productive and to be a part of life because I was too focused on the food. And he had, you know, what was really evident to me was he had a meeting, a business meeting, had to travel for work. And all I could think about was, oh, he would be gone now, and now I could be part of into the food as much as I wanted, and there would be no one around to really monitor what I'm doing. And, you know, as I was doing this and as I was in my head, I saw this. And But, you know, but for the grace of God that I'm not in that place anymore today, and I have a program that I can show up at, and I have a, a phone meeting that I can call every morning and start my day, and I'm so grateful for that. But, you know, I can... I can fool myself to think that, well, because I'm working, this, you know, and, you know, I'm at work, this doesn't apply, but it, it did apply to me. I mean, it, it, the food, the alcohol, I mean, it, it, it was calling to me, and I was not showing up for life because, you know, as the previous caller was saying, this was my focus. This is this is, was my focus of the day, and this is what I wanted. And, you know, I, I'm just so grateful for this program. And I have these tools and I have these steps that I can rely on so that I can show up and I can be productive. I can be in a relationship and I can be happy. And I don't have to be in the food and slowly killing myself. And, uh, you know, and, and so, again, thanks for being there. And with that, I'll close. Thank you, Leanne. Thank you. And uh, we'll move on to the next paragraph now. And, Esther, if you would please read that for us. Sure. Liquor ceased to be a luxury. It became a necessity. Bathtub gin, two bottles a day, and often three, got to be routine. Sometimes a small deal would net a few hundred dollars, and I would pay my bills at the bars and delicatessens. This went on endlessly, and I began to waken very early in the morning, shaking violently. A tumbler full of gin, followed by half a dozen bottles of beer, would be required if I were to eat any breakfast. Nevertheless, I still thought I could control the situation, and there were periods of sobriety which renewed my wife's hope. Good morning, everybody. My name is Esther, and I'm a compulsive overeater from Canada. This paragraph uh, describes the stage of the disease that I, you know, where I absolutely had to have it. I had to have the food. In, In the beginning of my compulsive overeating, I ate as a way of managing life's bumpy road, and overeating and eating my trigger foods would. They would lubricate those difficult challenges, or at least what I perceived to be challenges, because I had no other tools, no other way to manage the ups and downs of life. But at some point, and this is what I'm reading here, 
the compulsive overeating was no longer just the sugar that helped the medicine go down, but it became as necessary to me as oxygen or water. At least that's how it felt for me at the time, which is why at that point dieting became very difficult because how long could I go go without you know life's basic necessities? And so when I've got to have it, got to have it, anything is going to do it for me, whether it's frozen food, stale food, or other people's food, or even worse. And as Bill describes, this went on endlessly for me. And as he also writes, I still thought I could control the situation. Oh, look, there's a new diet, a new food strategy. All I have to do is eliminate one food group, and then I could eat everything else I want in unlimited quantities. Um, Or... Another case where I see, hey, they've been able to duplicate the taste of sugar without all those calories. Maybe that's going to be my solution. But, of course, these brief periods of dieting were always followed by worse descent into the, the disease, and this went on endlessly and endlessly. And with that, I'll pass. Thank you, Esther. Well, this is Janice, and I am a recovered compulsive overeater. Thank you, God. You know, this paragraph, this paragraph was so significant to me to connect, to identify. You know, liquor ceased to be a luxury. It became a necessity. You know, at some point in time, and I don't know that exact moment, but for me, it was no longer just a habit. It moved from habit to obsession. And we're starting to see in Bill's story here, he's painting us a picture, a vivid, vivid picture. And and what I see here is not only the physical allergy of the body, the physical allergy, it became a necessity. If he didn't continue drinking, he went into withdrawal. Well, you know what? Food did that to me too. Food did that to me too. You know, if you're anything like me and you've gotten abstinent, perhaps you've experienced it. There's withdrawal when you put down the food. And and Bill kept picking up the liquor again and again, but it was more than just the physical allergy at work here. It was the obsession of the mind. I still thought I could control the situation. I still thought I could control it, Bill said. You know, we're going to we're going to read that the idea that somehow someday he will control and enjoy his drinking is the great obsession of every abnormal drinker. And that's on page 30 and more about alcoholism. But we're seeing that. That's what was happening to Bill right here. You know, and like Bill, I couldn't stop. And if I did stop, I couldn't stop myself from starting again. You know, even though I knew and I could see that it was starting to be harmful to me, there was a form of insanity at work that kept me from the truth. It kept me from the truth. It kept me from seeing who I was and what I was up against. Because what what did I have? I didn't yet have the solution. And Bill here doesn't yet have a solution either. He's prisoner, held prisoner by the disease, which is tightening the noose around his neck, just like the food tightened the noose around my neck. And with that, I'll pass. Would anyone else like to comment on this paragraph? This is Kim. This is Katie. Go ahead, Kim, and then Katie. Thank you, Janice. Oh, I love this. This is where the boomerang has turned on Bill. The boomerang is now starting to shed, cut him to ribbons. You know, bathtub gin, two bottles a day, and often three got to be routine. You know, Bill was in the best country clubs. He was in the best jazz clubs. Having his, having his liquor. Now he's drinking bathtub gin and hold up in his house. I used to go to the best bakeries and the most expensive restaurants. And now I'm running to Walmart because I can get the most food that I can. And I'm going up into my childhood bedroom and I'm binging my brains out. You know, isn't it just that I like food? You know, we are told in the doctor's opinion, men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol. The effect of the food, it's not about that it tastes good. You know, I used to buy a a whole pizza and I would work so hard to eat half of it and then I would throw it in the trash but I would wrap it in tinfoil because I knew at 2 o'clock in the morning I was going to go in that trash and eat that pizza. 
And then finally I thought, well, I can't do this anymore. I can't do this anymore. And I would not wrap it in the, in the tinfoil. And I would throw it in the trash. And I would still get up at 2 o'clock in the morning. And I would wipe off the other trash and I would eat it. And then I got really desperate. So what I would do is I would put Ajax on top of the pizza. And I would throw it in the trash and I would cry, God, help me not to eat that pizza. God, help me not to eat that pizza. And 2 o'clock in the morning with tears running down my eyes, I would go in that trash and I'd wipe the Ajax off and I would eat the pizza. That is not someone who likes the taste of food. That is bathtub gin, two bottles a day, and often three got to be routine. I needed that food. That effect of the food was essential. And one of the worst things I remember was I was someone that I was a human calculator. I knew exactly how many minutes on every exercise machine I, I needed to work off a Snickers bar or work off, work off this food, binge food or that binge food. And one time I started binging, and I was opening up the freezer, and I was eating stuff frozen that should be defrosted. I was opening up cans of food that should have been warmed up and eating it out of the can. And I was shoving it in so fast, and I got scared because I lost count of those calories. I didn't know what kind of penance I had to do. So I dumped over that trash can, and I started going through the packages, and I started adding up the calories and figuring it out. And I finally started rocking because I realized I looked like a heroin addict looking for a needle. I was rocking on the floor going, oh, my God, what am I going to do? How can I live like this? Bathtub gin, two bottles a day, and often three got to be routine. This was not about me just liking the food. I was a slave. Liquor was no longer a luxury. It was now a necessity. And with that, I pass. Thank you, Kim. Go ahead, Katie. This is Katie, a compulsive overeater in Virginia. and. This is just, you know, it's so sad to me to to read this, and yet I can identify so uh, so much with the progression of the disease. That, you know, here two pages earlier, we're, you know, reading about a war hero, you know, someone who uh, got a college degree, took law courses, and you know, traveling the East Coast on a uh, with his wife and selling his ideas, and now he's down to, you know, bathtub gin, uh, three bottles a day before, um, or two bottles a day before he could even get up and and have breakfast. I mean, it, it's just, but that's what happened for me too. I, you know, came in with just a little weight problem. I came into these rooms at 14 years of age and thought, oh, that's the stupidest thing I ever heard of. Why would someone need to uh, surrender to the food? It's just food. You know, to, you know, fast forward 13 years later, and um, I couldn't get from my house to my job without binging. And I ate all day long every day. And my life was down to, you know, living in a, you know, renting one bedroom in a with four other women, um, making you know half of what I had been earning a few years earlier. I mean, I I just my life got so small, and um, you know, until I could hold on to the idea that it was just going to keep getting worse, I could not recover. And you know, I see how he part of his story is blaming others and you know well it's the market well it's the economy well it's this well it's that and you know those things have nothing to do with why he ever picked up that first drink to begin with and uh, you know this disease is cunning baffling and powerful it has no respecter of class it has no respecter of education has no respecter of you know, who you are, who you think you are in your own mind, it doesn't matter. And things got worse. And, um, you know, those tiny periods of sobriety, you know, sometimes they're, they're almost worse than, um, than just, you know, the admitting that it is hopeless. I mean, that's, what, that's where you have to get to. And I'm so grateful that, you know, we know that 
that great mind of his did turn around and gave us this um, recovery that is available for all of us. And I'm, uh, you know, I just have to be reminded, though. I, I can't identify out. I have to remember when I read these pages that that was me. Because if I forget where I've been, I'm going to go back there. It's guaranteed. I am still younger than some people are who walk into these rooms for the first time. I have years and years and decades of eating left in me if I, you know, stated that low simmer of, uh, of destruction. And I would take a lot of people with me now. I'm married. I have two stepchildren, two children, you know, a dog, a cat, a house, a job. But that would all go out the window if I forget who and what I am. I am recovered today, but I am not cured. That'll pass. Thank you, Katie. Would anyone else like to comment on this paragraph? Hello. This is Paula. May I share? I heard Paula, and who was the other person? Lois. Go ahead, Lois, and then Paula. Hi, good morning. This is Lois, recovered compulsive overeater, and um, I, I can relate to you know very very closely to to all of Bill's inside feelings and situations in my own. I can relate my situations to his, but I wanted to um, comment on the sentence. It says, nevertheless, I still thought I could control the situation, and there were periods of sobriety, uh, abstinence, which renewed my hope. And this sentence, you know, just jumped out at me because reading this and thinking about this, this this was the the um, illusion and delusion, you know, that that kept me hooked into the um, the the whirlpool of um, of compulsive overeating for the past I don't know maybe twenty years, even even more, because I could do this, you know. I didn't, you know, I didn't quite. Um, have the um, consequences that Bill had because with my eating, it you know it didn't it was easier it was easier to to hide of course and I didn't have that responsibility, but this was the illusion that that kept me in the in the um, sewer of this disease that I could do this and I could do it. There were many times when I could and I would go back and forth and back and forth until you know things got worse for me and it became not a luxury. It wasn't just a fun thing to do or a sweet, nice thing to do, fine dining, whatever. But I had to. I knew I had to have those foods, and that was a terribly scary thing to do. And um, I I sit with that, and I'm very, very grateful that, you know, I I know what the problem is and I know what the solution is today, and um, I'm going to close with that and pass. Thank you. Thank you, Lois. Go ahead, Paula. Thank you. This would be Paula, recovered compulsive overeater. You know, as we read this, I mean, we just see, oh, my God, look at what's happened. I mean, this man, I mean, not such a long time before for him it wondered if it seemed a lifetime. And he woke up. The liquor caught up much faster than I came up behind Walk. This is when he was golfing. Oof. He is true there. They're a true statement. I began to be jittery in the morning. Okay, a little jittery. I can handle that, though. Yeah. A shot. That'll do that. But then we change here, and we see the transformation becoming more complete here. A different kind of transformation. A transformation of all his dreams that became nightmares. And he said, They went on endlessly, oh, my God, to wake up every morning. Oh, no, just that, to wake up. And I began to wake up very early in the morning, even early. Couldn't sleep. Oh, it'll get you up, honey, the same way it puts you to bed. Shaken violently. Just from jitters, shaken violently. And then... As Lois shared, and I'm going to scoot on right down there, where she said, nevertheless, how can you say that after what you've been living? But he did, and he could, as we could. 
I still thought I can control the situation. And there were periods of sobriety. Mm, how they fool us. How they fool us. How they ambush us. Oh, you're better now. Did you feel a little bit better? Yeah. What was I thinking? What was I thinking? And then again, it starts. And look what it says, which renewed my wife's hopes. Not his. Not his. His wife's. And did it really? I doubt it. She wanted to believe a lie, as he did. Thank you for allowing me to share. And with that, I do pass. Thank you, Paula. Let's move on to the next two paragraphs. And Katie, would you please read those for us? Yes. Okay, so I'm I'm starting with gradually things got worse? Yes. Yes. Thanks, okay. Katie. Okay. I'm sorry. I'm Katie of Recovered Compulsive Overeater. Gradually, things got worse. The house was taken over by the mortgage holder. My mother-in-law died. My wife and father-in-law became ill. Then I got a promising business opportunity. Stocks were at the low point of 1932, and I had somehow formed a group to buy. I was to share generously in the profits. Then I went on a prodigious bender, and the chance vanished. You know, (laughs) it's like, oh, my gosh, how could that happen? How could he do that? After he's ruined all these people, doesn't he see the insanity of his disease? But we don't. We don't. That's the scary and sad part is that, you know, when you have tunnel vision and think it's everybody else's fault and this time it's not going to be so bad, then, you know, that is the great part of our disease. We have a disease that tells us we don't have a disease. And we have a mind that forgets, forgets how awful it was. So that's why, as I shared earlier, I'm so grateful that I remember being on my knees in the bathroom stall at this uh, premier hotel I worked at, and my job was to manage the buffet. So, you know, I was playing with food eight hours a day. And, of course, I didn't play with the food. I popped it in my mouth. And I got on my knees and I begged God to please help me not do that again. And I got up and I walked out and I ate again. You know, <laughs> we gradually things got worse. They will get worse. It is guaranteed you know, we have a saying in our uh, in our rooms that, um, you know, if you want to go back out and see what it's like, you know, we'll gr- gladly refund your misery because that's all you're going to find. That's all you're going to find if you try that desperate experiment one more time of taking that first bite. Whatever that is for you, is it volume? Is it a combination? Is it all of the above? For me, it became all of the above. Anything, anything that I popped in my mouth that was not, you know, before I surrendered to uh, my higher power, I became a slave to that. And, you know, here, here he was blaming the world for all his problems, and that's why I drank. Now everything's coming back to him, and he drank again. That is insanity. And with that, I'll pass. Thank you, Katie. Would anyone else like to comment on these paragraphs? This is Leah. Go ahead, Leah. Thank you so much. Then I got a promising business opportunity. Then I went on a prodigious bender, and that chance vanished. Uh, Yeah, Bill got an opportunity, all right. He got a chance to be a president of a company so long as he wouldn't drink for a number of months. <laughs> See, all his business associates uh, knew, you know, and watched the unraveling of their friend Bill Wilson. And uh, they gave him an opportunity. He could be president of a company as long as he didn't drink. And he signed a contract. And if he drank, he would be out of the contract completely. But if he didn't drink... He would make hundreds of thousands of dollars. 
and he just finished making the deal, and, you know, they're sitting around, and some Jersey Lightning is being passed around the table, and he's never had a drink like that before. He's never tasted that kind of alcohol, and at first he says no thank you, and when that bottle comes around again, you know what he does? He does what an alcoholic does. He picks up that first drink. And he went on a prodigious bender, and that chance vanished. See, the problems of our, are of our own making. We are the creators of this pain. He is creating this pain for himself. He is making a choice. He's serving the master. And that's exactly what addiction is all about. Addiction is when the, uh, you know, the substance, in this case, Bill's alcohol, in my case, compulsive overeating, I continue to use my substance in spite of the consequences. In spite of the consequences, when that use becomes so important, this drinking, this necessity, Bill is not drinking for fun anymore. This is not Bill drinking for fun. He is drinking in order to live. He can't get along without the alcohol. And he can't get along with it. Right? Alcoholics can't drink and they can't not drink. It was the same for me. I, got, the, the, I couldn't continue to binge my brain that I was going to kill myself. And yet I felt like if I was going to die if I didn't. That's being cornered. And that pursuit of that next binge seems to be the only normal life I had. The abnormal became the norm. Waking up extra early to go pursue my binge foods and have time to binge before showing up at school or before showing up at work became the norm. Sitting in a parking lot at night for hours and hours and hours while friends or loved ones were, you know, interacting at home and awaiting my arrival. But yet I'm, I'm developing relationships with cellophane bags and bakery boxes and ice cream containers and wrappers, you know, while I'm watching life go by. I mean, people say that death is the greatest loss in life. Really? <laughs> Perhaps, you know, the greatest loss in life is dying inside while you're still alive. You know, so I relate absolutely to this. This noose was placed around my neck at a very young age, you know, but it got tighter and tighter and tighter and tighter. And that's exactly the nature of the disease. It never gets better. It always, always gets worse. You know, Bill was serving a master here. He was serving a master when it said earlier that he would pay his bills at the bars and delicatessens. That is the beast whispering in his ear that it is time to pay up. I mean, we do what we have to do to serve the master. Thank God this program of recovery introduces us to a new master and we get to try our best one day at a time to serve that ultimate master. It's a choice. Can't serve two masters at once. Which one is it going to be? That's a choice I have to make every single day. And with that, I pass. Thank you. Thank you, my dear Leah. Well, we're going to close the meeting here. Uh, We have time for one quick one, Sharon. Oh, okay. Thank you so much. I just... Uh, Janice, this is Sharon, uh, Recovered Compulsive Overeater. I want to point out this word, gradually, things got worse. Who is he kidding? Gradually. What does that mean, (laughs) gradually? I mean, we're talking about a guy that's at the bottom, and he's living in the house with his his in-laws, and his wife is working, and he can't work, and he's losing everything, and he's talking about gradually things got worse. This is some insanity talking right here. And I turn that back on myself and I look at how I rephrase things to make it seem like it's not as bad as it seems. When I look at that word gradually and I think about Bill writing it, that gradually things got worse, I'm thinking he's he's not really seeing things clearly here. This is something that is already bad and going from worse to worse. And so for me, I have to realize that there's a tendency in human nature to rephrase things to make it seem that it's not as bad as what it is. And so I have to 
And I notice I do that in myself. Even in recovery, I find that I kind of close my eyes to certain things and I don't want to see things as what they are. And so it's really important for me to keep checking in, to keep checking in with my fellows, checking in and, and, and uh, watching myself. And with that, I pass. Thank you, Sharon. Thank you to everyone who has shared today. Thank you to my readers, Kathy and Penny and Esther and Katie and Melanie and Margaret and to everyone who shared. We will now close with a reading from the big book on page 164 followed by the serenity prayer. And Kathy, could you please read that for us? Um, just getting the page here. 164, my dear. Okay, here we are. Okay, our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order, but obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right, and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then.